so as human beings who have inherited a culture that is both patriarchally biased, class biased, capitalism biased, and race biased, I think we have all of those combining within us to orient us towards constantly doing. And we've all heard the phrase, I want to be a human being as much or more than I want to be a human doing. But we have a lot of programming to be a human doing. And I think that's what the Thomas Merton quote pointed to so beautifully. Welcome to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for people like you who care about the social impact of conscious companies and everyday heroes. Hear inspiring stories from those who put people and planet before profit and personal gain. You'll learn how you can make a difference, vote with your dollars, and get involved today. Here's your host, Karina Belizzi. Hello, fellow do-gooders and friends. I'm your host, Karina Belizzi, an activist and cause marketer who's passionate about building a regenerative future, one in which we can all thrive, people, planet, all of our resources. Every week, I invite you to care more so that together we can be better. So we can reach more people with the important content that we create here. I invite you to subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast episode with your community, because this episode in particular is one you'll certainly be glad you didn't miss. Today, we are going to learn about relational leadership, ideas that have come from classic philosophers, monks, and even indigenous peoples as we discuss creating a new norm in leadership that values the feminine and the masculine in one complete package that moves from extractive principles to collaborative ones so that we can create that regenerative future for the generations that will follow us. I'm joined by the perfect partner to discuss these issues today, the architect of a community of pioneers that hold in their hearts, their minds and intentions, the power to change the world. I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to an incredible woman and leader today. She is the co-founder and chief relationship officer at Bioneers, Nina Simons. Throughout her career, Nina has worked with nearly a thousand diverse women leaders across disciplines, race, class, age, and orientation to co-create mutual learning, trust, and leadership development. She co-edited Moonrise, The Power of Women Leading from the Heart, and authored Nature, culture, and sacred. A woman listens for leadership. Being released in its second edition this June, the first edition won gold Nautilus Awards in the categories of women, intersectionality, and social justice. Both books are being used to inspire and ignite individuals, circles, and even classrooms. She serves as the Advisory Council for Daughters for Earth and in 2017 received the Goy Peace Award with her husband and partner, Kenny Asubal, for pioneering work to promote nature, inspired innovations for restoring the earth and human community. Past honorees included Bill Gates, James Lovelock, and even Deepak Chopra. Wow, Nina, that's quite the intro, but I felt like I had to get it all in there. Gosh, well, thank you, Corina. It sounds like you're describing someone else to me, but thank you. (laughs) Well, isn't that always the case? I think as women, we often learn to sell ourselves down in a way, like not extol our virtues quite enough, not prop ourselves up. And yet we will criticize men for doing the same and patting themselves on the back, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> well, and there's also a virtuous side to it, which is I've really learned to value humility in leaders. And so, yeah, it's a balance. Always. It's true. <laughs> now, I feel like we need this second edition today, perhaps more than in many times. Recently, we just had the overturn of Roe versus Wade, and this is an apparent walk back of women's rights in ways that we're just beginning to really understand, I think, reeling from a lot of those decisions to date. Some days, I'm just not sure if we're in the midst of a revolution or a crisis of leadership, perhaps both. So tell me, why did you decide to put forth this second edition today, and how does it differ from the first one? Well, what happened was that when the first one came out, my mother entered her end of life. And it was a time that called me to bring all of myself to attending to her because it was obvious that that's where my heart led me. So I wasn't able to promote the book at all. But in spite of that, it won these two awards. And then I started hearing from educators and women who were in study circles together. And the educators were using the book in all kinds of leadership classes. And the women's circles, ranging from California to Europe, were using the book as a study guide. And so I was gifted with the opportunity to update the book. And what I decided to do was to create discussion guides and embodied practices. And it was really exciting for me, Karina, because in many ways, it united two bodies of work that have been major streams in my own leadership evolution. And so I was able to bring together all that I've been learning through Bioneers, as well as what I've been learning through doing immersive retreats with women over the last 20 years or so. So that's why. <laughs> wow. Well, there were a few surprises for me as I paged through it. I mean, some of it bordered on simply poetry. So really causing me to stop, pause, think, reflect. And then the questions that you're asking at the end of each section, I think in some cases they're disruptive because I would have thought that I understood something from an earlier space. And then I got to a question and I'd be like, oh, wait, what do I really think about this? What is relational leadership to me? How is that different than what I've been doing? What were the mimics? Who were the people that I was mimicking, the examples that I was replicating in my own leadership that I might not have even wanted to, that you just did because it was how you grew up or it was what you got exposed to. And so it really did cause me to question my early leadership, the people I chose, whether they knew it or not, as my mentors, and how I shifted and changed my own perspective as time went on and as I learned from my failings. Yeah. Well, I'm so glad to hear that, Karina. Thank you for that feedback, because I believe that we're all just filled with social conditioning, much of which goes unconscious and unseen by ourselves. So part of the purpose of the book is to really offer a creative mirror to say, honestly, I think the more authentically we can see and relate to ourselves in a congruent way and continue to cultivate ourselves towards becoming the leaders we believe in and we want to be, the more we can shed that cultural conditioning. So it means a lot to me because you're a very accomplished leader and 
I'm grateful that it stirred you in that way. Well, I have to be honest. I don't think I've read that many books on leadership that were by women. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, right? Like mm -hmm. yeah. I went to get my MBA very recently. This isn't like, I mean, I'm 45, but I did this very recently. I went to Santa Clara University. I got my MBA from there, graduated top of my class, selected for the poets and quants representative, best and brightest, all this stuff. And as I went through all the course material, there was quite often this moment where I would step and say, you know, I think this is wrong. Hmm. And there was one in particular that was held up as the end all be all. It's called the leadership challenge. And in that particular book, they proposed this idea, Barry Posner, there's like a wing of the university dedicated to Barry Posner, right? So ah. <laughs> like very ingrained. <laughs> he says that leaders should want to struggle. And if they don't want to struggle, then they should not essentially be leaders. Wow. And I was like, wait a minute, let me think about this. Like, I don't think that leaders want to struggle. I don't think people want to struggle. And I think if we're always looking at leadership challenges as something to struggle through, conquer, surmount, then we're still kind of stuck in this whole perspective of extractive principles, of something that isn't relational. And honestly, if somehow putting a leader above other people, because if you don't want to struggle, you're not a leader. There's so much judgment in that. And I really felt like it was an archaic principle. It didn't make sense to me from the things that I was learning from my world and from my life. And so when I pushed back on that particular piece, I was met with, this is the way it is, basically. So I wanted to really start the depth of our conversation about relational leadership on page 58 of your book, if I can just read this quote. As human beings, we're built for relationship. Our young remain dependent far longer than most other creatures, and our neural systems and limbic brains are hardwired for empathy, compassion, and connection. We're a highly adaptable species, and one of our finest adaptive strategies is as mimics. Fortunately, we have an abundance of relational intelligence to learn from, if only we can humbly accept its tutelage. The natural world is resplendent with symbiotic, long-term reciprocal relationships between blossom and pollinator, moisture and mycelium, plants and herbivores. In nature, no one lives in isolation and the sense of balanced interdependence is palpable in any thriving ecosystem. I mean, I want to go on. I do. I, but I'll read the entire book if you let me. <laughs> no, thanks. <laughs> you wrote it. But thank you. <laughs> I'm so glad you feel that way. There are two things that what you're saying and reading prompts me to offer, Karina. One is that part of what prompted my inquiry into leadership was my own experience of being acknowledged as a leader and realizing I didn't like it and I felt like I wanted to deflect it. I didn't want to own the title. I knew that I was supposed to be flattered, but in fact, I felt targeted in a way, and I was really uncomfortable with it. And I thought, well, if one of the things that I've learned from Bioneers is that we're all called to be leaders now, then what's wrong with this picture? How might we be redefining and reinventing leadership so that we can all wholeheartedly aspire to it? 
And that's what prompted me to do my first book called Moonrise, The Power of Women Leading from the Heart, which also includes the leadership of some men. And the other thing that I was going to say is that over the course of 20 or 25 years of convening groups of women leaders who were selected precisely because of their commitment, their achievement, their devotional leadership, what I found was that every single group came together with that same disclaimer of, I don't consider myself a leader. And so a lot of what we did in those retreats was to unpack what are some of the definitions that we've inherited about leadership and how might they not be serving us? And what is leadership that we all believe in for this time? And your example is a great one because one of the inquiries that I've had going for a long time has to do with the relationship of leadership and sacrifice. And at first, when I heard leaders have to be comfortable with sacrifice, I thought, I don't know if that's true. I'm not sure that they necessarily require one another, right? And the more that I've lived and experienced as a leader, the more that I've come to understand that actually you have to be willing to do some amount of sacrifice because life is always a juggling act of all the things we care about. And typically, if you're really committed to something, it involves at some point sacrificing something else in order to really serve it well. But I don't think it requires hardship and I don't think it requires what you're describing. And I think there is far too little that's said about the benefits of serving what you love and care most deeply about. So there's a virtuous side to this new definition of leadership, which is it's more joyful, it's more fulfilling. And it's more integrated with my whole life. And I love that. And I want it for everyone. Yeah. Now, to deepen this further, you write about your journey to discovering the kind of activist you are. And I find myself reflecting on the same thing there because it's like defining yourself as an activist felt at first perhaps duplicitous because you might not have been out there marching enough or doing the work that was physically visible on the outside as activism. And I think that this is something a lot of people experience, but I also want to point to something you shared from page 66 as you introduce us to the Trappist monk, Thomas Burton, who I did not know, but found myself like wanting to applaud as I'm reading the book, <laughs> when he talks about the rush and pressure of modern life and how we are essentially living in a situation where by putting all this pressure on ourselves, we are essentially assaulting ourselves and we're not doing the good that we want to be doing, essentially. That's what I took away from it. Can you talk about it? Can you talk about how you discovered even this particular work? Well, I feel like what your question wants me to point to, Karina, is the archetypal underpinnings of the book, which really suggest that We've all inherited, consciously or subconsciously, definitions of leadership and of achievement in the world that are very heavily influenced by a bias toward the masculine and also very heavily influenced against those human values that we associate with the, quote, feminine. Mm -hmm. And 
referring to the great psychologist Carl Jung, who suggests that the feminine is what's interior and the masculine begins at the exterior. And I actually think this is related to not only a gender biased culture, but a racist culture. That part of white supremacy tells us that we should be striving for perfection and overachievement all the time. Mm. And that's simply not sustainable. And it is biasing us toward a kind of orientation towards productivity and what we value that's all about the outer and doesn't value the restorative, the regenerative, the value in sustainable agriculture of letting a field lay fallow for a time so that it can regenerate, of everything in nature has cycles of productivity and of rest and receptivity. And so as human beings who have inherited a culture that is both patriarchally biased, class biased, capitalism biased, and race biased, I think we have all of those combining within us to orient us towards constantly doing. And we've all heard the phrase, I want to be a human being as much or more than I want to be a human doing. But we have a lot of programming to be a human doing. And I think that's what the Thomas Merton quote pointed to so beautifully. Wow. So to jump right into this topic, I think I just want to say how much I agree with you, because I think that so many of us just, we add layers of doing to our lives without taking a moment to rest and reflect. We think that to be successful, to ladder climb, we need to put in those crazy long hours. We need to follow Sheryl Sandberg's perspective and lean in which is ultimately, I believe, toxic. It doesn't respect our unique value as people, as women, as individuals. And it's almost as if we have to look busy in order to see our value or to be busy. So how do we break the cycle? Wow. Well, (laughs) I think it's a lifelong process. I find myself continuing to practice. And I believe it's really deeply related to practices and rituals that help us to reclaim our sense of inherent self-worth. Because really, it's not how much of our to-do list we can cross off that creates our value. It's who we are in the world. And it's who we are to ourselves, to our families, to our community, and to the land that supports us. And I just think, especially now, in the midst of this pandemic, which I believe part of its message to us is to slow down and appreciate life and celebrate and value the gift that we are. So I'm finding that it's an ongoing practice of, like I realized that I reached a point where I was tired of giving the excuse for being late or not delivering something that I was too busy. Mm -hmm. And I realized that some part of my ego got stroked by being so busy. And I thought, that's not who I want to be in this world. So I'm starting to create more time and space in my life to value the things that are not so externally driven and to recognize that actually, I mean, I have come to believe that parenting is one of the 
most profound acts of leadership and of activism that anyone can do. So how do we value that more? And how do we recognize that we have to rest and replenish ourselves in order to show up in the best way on behalf of the world we love? And play is part of it. <laughs> yeah, well, I need to dedicate some more space in my life to breathe. <laughs> I get my outdoor time when I'm also walking the dog and listening to a podcast and, Aww. and you know what I mean? Like there's yeah. so many things we just pile uh, into one moment because it might be the only break we allow ourselves. Well, and multitasking is a blessing and a curse, you know? Right. Well, <laughs> now course, we have our computers in our anything. pockets all the time, right? Right. <laughs> and I love when I'm walking my dogs, having a practice of pouring my love into the earth and asking her for forgiveness. And those things make me feel really replenished at the end of the walk. Yeah, I love that. So let's talk about what Wendell Berry characterized as solving for pattern. This is a subject I've discussed in various interviews in my time hosting the show, including when I connected with David Johnson on climate activism and Paul Hawken on regeneration. I positioned it as the unintended consequences, even when it seems those unintended consequences could easily have been seen if we'd just taken the time to think something through. So this is in response to that issue that, as you say on page 116, an ideal, elegant solution looks at a problem in relationship to the larger patterns within which it is embedded. So let's talk about that because I want people to walk away from today's discussion with an understanding of what we really mean by relational leadership. Okay. Well, relational leadership to me has many aspects. One very pragmatic example that I would offer is the recognition that I came to some years ago that when I'm working with a team, whether it's in a for-profit or non-profit environment or in a circle, that if we put relationship before task, everything goes better. And what I mean by that is when we have our staff meetings now at Bioneers, we check in on a personal level because this time is challenging for all of us. And we wanna know health-wise how people are doing, if they're suffering losses, if there are particular challenges because their kids are home from school, it's taking in the whole person. So before we talk about the to-do list, it's understanding and appreciating what is the context that they're operating in. So that's one example of relational leadership. But in terms of solving for pattern, one of the deepest lessons that I feel like I've received from serving this social system of pioneers all these years is that our ecological challenges and our social challenges and our political challenges and our economic challenges and our business challenges and education, they're all part of one system. I think it's one of the biggest systems errors that we humans tend to make is imagining that we and nature's systems are somehow separate when of course, Nature made us. She is our mother in the most literal sense. And we are products of nature. So how do we shift that relationship so that we understand that we are never going to achieve 
a climate justice without addressing racial equity and gender equity and transforming how our political system works. So they're all interconnected and not separate as our culture would have us imagine. Our culture tends to want to put us into neat little cubby holes. And it's that divide and conquer strategy, some of which has been appallingly effective, really, when you consider how much of the movement towards equity and sustainability, how much of those movements have in common, and yet how unconnected they currently are. I mean, you mentioned Roe versus Wade earlier and the Supreme Court's wild reneging on that and reversal of that constitutional right. And what I'm aware of, because I have a growing sensitivity about racial justice and how it plays out in our systems, is that for low-income and women of color and indigenous women, the issues around reproductive justice have been there for them for a much longer, more obvious time than they have for those of us with white skin. And that's just a reality. And it's not an accident that amazing authors like Octavia Butler and Louise Erdrich wrote futuristic novels where they anticipated a future political scene very much like what we're living through now because of their lived experience. So for me, solving for pattern means every time you look at a challenge, you look to see what it's connected to in all of its various dimensions. And then you see, as Wendell Berry says, what are the solutions that can create cascading benefits to many of those other systems? Because they do exist, and when we find them, they feel like magic. But really, mostly, they're mimicking nature. So instead of a side effect or a byproduct, we end up with a benefit. Yes. And I feel like there are too few of these particular cascading benefits that are at the center of even entrepreneurial efforts, especially when companies seek to just simply drive down costs without taking into account the after effect, or when we seek to change something about a particular environment because we don't like the pests that we're seeing. And I think, for example, there's been all sorts of spraying of pheromones to affect the, I think it's called a brown apple moth in our area. And I don't know enough about it to really understand what is going to happen to our ecosystem as a result of it, but it just feels wrong. And because it feels wrong, I react and I say, well, look, these we're spraying pheromones. What is the other effect of this going to be? How else is it going to impact my local environment? Is it going to affect other insect species? Where is that going to land us in the realm of pests? This particular moth might be replaced with something else. And we can't know what that next cascade is going to be if it's a negative cascade until after we've taken that step to alter the environment in some way. And so I feel like a lot of the solutions we create as a result are short-sighted and I think it's something that we need to think through more. That's why I think I said that before. The unintended consequences 
of our actions, you can have all the best intentions in the world and you can destroy an ecosystem. Well, exactly. And I think we humans have a tendency to perpetuate patterns and to do what's been done before. And I live in northern New Mexico where we just had an over 300,000 acre wildfire that was started by the Forest Service doing a controlled burn even after I got all my activist hackles up and we had all these town meetings and town halls and everyone came out from the community and said, don't do controlled burns now, it's too dangerous, it's too dry, we're in a hundred year drought. And they did it anyway and I never imagined that I would be pitted against the Forest Service. But there you have it. And without considering the full context, one of my favorite examples actually from a while back was a bank in Holland called Triodosh Bank, who were very progressive and very sustainability oriented. And they reserved a seat in their boardroom for nature. And when they would have a decision on the table, they would actually take the time to consider what would the influences and impacts of that decision be on the natural world. And that's the kind of thing we need to do. And how. <laughs> <laughs> because the law of unintended consequences is there, it's real, and it's not going to go away just because we think, oh, no, I, I mean, I need to get at these rare earth minerals. I'm going to defrost Greenland or the more recent plan to drill into the seabed, which to me, there's so little of our deep ocean world that we really understand. And it's one of the few places that has been relatively untouched by humanity. My advocacy is for our oceans before our people, generally speaking, <laughs> simply because without a living ocean, it's as if the game is over. And I mean, you could argue on both sides of that street, of course, but I wonder what your thoughts are specifically, since we've alluded to this topic a bit through our conversation, about that intersection of social advocacy and climate activism. Because, I mean, some argue, oh, well, if you don't put planet first, we're done. And my thinking, too, is that, well, if we don't solve some of the social challenges we confront, then people in faraway places that we can't see in our backyards are just going to trash their local environment because they see no other way and see no hope too. And so out of sight, out of mind is also a problem of humanity. Oh, if I'm not looking at it, it's not there. How do you see us building towards a future where we can solve both of these problems at the same time or attack both of them with the same vigor? It's a big question. Yeah, it is. And honestly, the thing that has me most daunted at this moment is our political logjam. Because the reality is that there are solutions that already exist. That a Green New Deal is a brilliant idea. And there are all kinds of facets to it that would support economic repair and job creation, while at the same time creating green infrastructure, which we so badly need. And I mean, we need to have massive investments in biomimicry. There are technological solutions that would decrease our energy use by 50 or 60% like that, if only we had the political will 
to say this is a priority and this is what we need to be spending money on. So I think it's a false either or conundrum. And it's one that we're seeing some of the worst manifestations of a capitalist culture run amok, where really there are corporations more in control of our political future right now. And there is a real lack of leadership, honestly. But I do believe, as Thich Nhat Hanh said, that we are entering a time of collaborative leadership and that it's time for the grassroots to really rise up and speak loudly and take the risk of demanding change because it is upon us. And the truth of climate catastrophe has never been more obvious. And we do really have to act now not to resolve it, but to mitigate the impacts of it. Mm -hmm. And again, it's what Bioneers is all about. I mean, we've been lifting up solutions and trying to awaken people to the climate challenges since 1990. And it's very humbling to have been doing that so long and to recognize how badly we underestimated the forces we were aligned against and the power that they wielded. I mean, there are beautiful examples all over the world of not only sustainable, but regenerative solutions. And it's interesting to me that when I began to learn about the value of understanding gender in terms of our human wholeness, what I was learning at the same time was that in Paul Hawkins' Drawdown book, if you combine the education and the leadership and the sovereignty and the reproductive rights of women, if you combine those all together, they're in like the top two or three regenerative solutions. So partly it's about women in gendered form, but also I think we can transform our systems and our institutions if all leaders begin to lead from a more balanced place and really integrate, regardless of what gendered body they may be in, and really integrate more relational intelligence and collaborative leadership into their practices. Wow. Well, I feel like I keep getting more to think about as I read your book. I do want to know, have this cover I'm holding up here. You have it behind you on your wall as well. Who designed this cover? Because <laughs> it, it's an art piece in itself. It is. Well, the cover was made by combining a painting, a print actually, by a renowned Japanese artist and activist named Mayumi Oda. And Mayumi has done an incredible body of work, both activist and exquisite spiritual work, detailing goddesses from almost every culture. And this one, when I saw that she was a woman riding a bicycle with Ganesh on her handlebars, I thought, who is the god of removing obstacles? I thought, oh, that's what I want on the cover of my book. And then I have a colleague named Sharon Zetter, who is also a book designer. And so she helped design the cover around that image. And it is beautiful. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I do too. So I had this, I was reading it when a couple of friends came over with their two daughters. And the older of the two is Olive. She's about eight years old. The younger is six. And they loved the cover and they started asking me about the nipple. And 
<laughs> I feel like exposing a breast in this world is something that has fallen under some crazy puritanical beliefs and even get you censored on places like Instagram or Facebook for having dared to show a nipple when men can go shirtless all day long. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like there's power in that image just from that alone. As a mom of two boys, I breastfed in recent past. The older is seven, but the younger is four. And I was surprised at how many people would tell me to cover up when I was nursing. We have a long way to come, in particular in this country, because we just have what you referred to as that logjam. But also, I think it's a logjam in our minds. We are one of the least open developed countries insofar as our thinking about solutions has and so far as thinking of or perceiving women to be in positions of leadership. I worked for a long time for a Norwegian company and the CEO often said to me, 50% of CEOs in Norway are women. Mm -hmm. We don't have that culture here. We don't automatically think of women as leaders. And I find that, I mean, obviously deplorable, but it plays out in the highest office in our land. We were more likely to vote into office a charlatan who has a TV show over a woman with all the experience in the world. A charlatan misogynist TV yeah. show host. <laughs> and we knew that yep. going in. And yeah, we, we sure it. did. And so it's the crazy race through space, as I like to say. We're all on this planet and this world together. And one day, my hope for all people here is that we'll figure it out that we will treat people equally, that it won't have to be an ask, that we won't have to own a hashtag like BLM or any of it because it won't need to be talked about anymore. We'll all be on that plane. And I do feel like your book is something that will help women step into leadership and own their own voice in a way that matters to them and in a way that can matter to their communities and grow through collaboration. Too often, I think women step on one another as they climb, kind of replicating the male leadership perspectives that they've seen around them. And I am a huge proponent of collaboration. So I encourage people to think about leadership in that way as a collaborative effort to read your book. And I may even share a quote or two on my social spaces and follow up to this talk. So Nina, I just want to thank you so much for your time today, for this important work, for everything you do with Bioneers, and for just being a pure joy. I'm glad to call you a friend. Thank you, Karina. You too. I'm really honored. And the book is also available as an audiobook for those who like to listen to their books. Good to know. And you read it. That's my understanding. I do. Yeah, yeah. that's incredible. So before we wrap, if there was a question that I haven't asked that you wish I had, you can ask and answer it. Or if you'd just like to provide some parting thoughts for the audience, you have the floor. Well, thank you. I think what I would offer is to say that what we haven't talked about so much is the value of vulnerability and not knowing and turning into conflict as leaders. And those are some of the things that I'm finding really important in my own life and my own learning. I feel like part of our conditioning says it's bad to not know the answer or to reveal your vulnerability. 
And actually, I think it's one of our strengths, not only as women, but all people, to reveal that we can't all know all the answers. I think it's one of the toxic things about the model we've inherited. And vulnerability and transparency can be a real strength. And so I wanted to name that. And similarly, I think as women, we have a tendency to avoid conflict. So three things, avoiding conflict, what I'm learning, and I love this, there's a quote by Maladoma Somme, who says, conflict is a relationship's way of inviting you to go deeper. And I thought, wow, that's a beautiful way to reorient around what happens when a conflict arises. And I think the last thing is just to say, what I love about this new definition of leadership that I'm working with is that I feel like I'm cultivating myself always to become who my soul was born to be. Mm. And that's a very fulfilling process and one that I wish for everyone. And rather than leadership being an end goal or an end point, I hope that I'm cultivating my own leadership until the day I die. And for me, it's a way of living my life really fully. And I want to invite everyone listening to do the same because the earth needs all of us fully engaged in all the ways we can right now. And that means serving what we most love and care about most deeply. And so thank you, Karina, for the gift of this conversation and this time together. I really admire and respect and appreciate what you're doing with Care More, Be Better. It's so intelligent and it's so dimensional. And thank you. Well, thank you for the compliment. It's high praise, especially coming from you. And what I will say overall is let that journey not be a struggle. Indeed. (laughs) So perhaps I'm speaking out against the Barry Posners of the world, but I really do think that there's a better way to lead and it shouldn't feel like that. If that's our language to describe what leadership is, then I don't think it's something I would want either. So I think Emma Goldman said the revolution must have dancing. Oh, yes. And I love that. I love that too. Let's dance our way into a new world. (laughs) Dance me into, oh God, I'm thinking of a song, but there's a song about dancing into love. And I feel like that's what we're doing when we're speaking for the earth and of the earth. We need to come at it with love. And if we can make it a stakeholder at the table, just like that board center meeting, then great. Consider the love of planet first. Thank you, Nina, for writing this beautiful book and for being a part of this podcast today. I'll be sure to include links to your websites, bioneers.org and also ninasimons.com with show notes, along with your social profiles, direct links to your books, resources, and podcast episodes that we mentioned in this episode today. Just visit caremorebebetter.com and they'll be there for you. Now, as we close today's show, I invite you all to think deeply about the leader that you are and the leader you want to become. It might be a new path forward for you, a new career, or even simply a new style of being within your community or in your home with your family for the better. To Nina's point, we are all leaders if we choose to be. Our social and environmental crises are all part of the same system, and we really do need to be fully engaged to meet this time that we're all lucky enough to be a part of. To Nina's point, gender is not binary. 
We are man, woman, and everything in between. But as women, women today, we have a different empathic window into the injustices of the world. And in many cases, because we receive the brunt of them, as with the Roe v. Wade overturn. It's time to tap into that reality, learn from it, and grow. If you enjoyed today's show, please share this episode. You can send the link over Messenger or email, or even just post about it in your social channels. Share your thoughts and invite others to share theirs as well. You might even consider picking up a copy of Nature, Culture, and the Sacred for yourself and gifting a copy to a friend. That's what I plan to do. Now, if you have questions for me or for Nina, I hope you'll send me a note to hello at caremorebebetter.com. Or better yet, leave me a voicemail. Just go to caremorebebetter.com and click on that microphone icon in the bottom right-hand corner. You can leave me a message with your thoughts. Who knows? It could even become part of a future episode if you allow it. Now, thank you, now and always, for being a part of this pod and this community, because together we really can do so much more. We can care more and we can be better. We can even break free of any feelings of powerlessness and regenerate social systems and our beloved earth. I'm here and I'm ready. Are you? Thanks for listening to Care More, Be Better, a podcast for social good. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And share with your friends to help us reach more people and spread more social good.